of a stroke. And we pray even now for your wisdom, for your skills to be upon those who are providing care for him. We pray for his recovery. And Father, you know all the unspoken needs. We pray that you would lift up those who are ill, for those who are going through difficult times in their lives, maybe relationships or job-related and all kinds of troubles that we have in our lives. We look to you as our good shepherd to care and to provide for us, to meet us in time of need, to watch over us. And then we lift up even now ourselves before you. We have come to worship you, to, to offer to you a gift, the sacrifices of worship. But we come again to you as needy people and pray that as we worship you, that all the more that you would feed us. Feed us as you have already been doing through the words of these songs, through our fellowship, but particularly through the, the reading and the proclamation of your word. Feed us, our Father, that we may go forth all the more well-fed, all the more equipped to live for our Lord Jesus Christ, all the more comforted, all the more, Father, grounded in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, for our scripture reading, if you will turn with me, we have started the book of Jonah. Now, if you're using the, the Bibles um, out there, the NIV Bibles, you'll find it on page 654. Jonah can be hard to find. You know, it's a minor prophet. It's a small one, and it's mixed up with all those other smaller minor prophets. I learned a lot of deep things in seminary, and one of them that the Old Testament professor taught me was after, after the major prophets, which is Ezekiel, and then you have Daniel, you just remember that heaven just ain't over Jordan. That Jordan is, is the book of Jonah. Gives you Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, and Jonah. So that's how I remember whenever I'm, now where is that, that book of Jonah? Okay. So I'm actually going to read not 5 through 16, but the verses from uh, last Sunday, 1 through 4 leading up to it, because as I go through it in my message, I'll be reading through that passage. But let us hear the word of God. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. Further evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Our Father, as we open your word before us, open our minds to, to understand it, open our hearts that we may be willing to be examined by it. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, by the way, I... I uh, in, in translations, but my, my wife brought this to my attention. You know, last Sunday I was making all this 
great point about the presence of the Lord. You see how it's in there. And she said, well, if they're looking at the NIV, they don't see that there. There is no presence. It's just the Lord. So I have to try to, re- to be mindful. The text that I read from and I preach from is called the English Standard Version, ESV. And so if, if I'm saying something and you say, but I don't see it here, well, I see it in my Bible, I, I guess. You'll just have to, to accept it there. And um, so let's, let's move into this. Let me ask you a question. What do you fear? Who do you fear? Or even, for that matter, what does it even mean to fear? And I bring that up because fear is the word that keeps cropping up in our text this morning. And getting these questions sorted out will help us to understand this passage and also how we ought to regard and worship God. Now, we left our little ship last Sunday stranded in the mighty tempest on the Mediterranean Sea there in verse 4. It was threatening to break up. The Lord had hurled a great wind upon the sea in response to um, Jonah's futile effort at escaping his presence. And so we're going to pick up with that action now. So beginning with verse 5. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Now, until we come to verse 5, although, of course, there has to be other characters in the story, this is the first time reference is made to them. We have these mariners sailors, and their captain. And there are two things that have already been brought out about them. One is they are afraid. Okay? Secondly, that they're also religious. Now, that they are afraid is just another indication of how terrible this storm is. I mean, these would have been experienced mariners. They're not going to get afraid at uh, just some wind coming or just even some kind of light storm coming. They're not going to be frightened easily. That they're going to start throwing cargo over the ship reveals how desperate their plight has become. But they also cry out to their gods. And we've always been told that there are no atheists in foxholes. And evidently, there are no atheists on board of ships when there's a big storm uh, coming their way also. Now, evidently, None on the, you know, on board of these ships being taught about in, in, in these storms, they, they're obviously from different nations because each one is crying out to his own God. So they're coming from all these different places. Now, you might remember last time I made reference to this. Back in those days, well, actually even in these days, depending where you are, I guess, the view was that gods were connected to certain territories or nations. And so each one is picking out the god from their nation and lifting up their prayers. And they're not superficial prayers. 
they believed in these gods. And indeed, the captain wakes up Jonah for this very purpose, to get him to also pray to his God. Okay? I mean, there's no other reason to wake up Jonah. He's not going to be any help to these, um, to these sailors. So the gods have their limits, and maybe someone's God, maybe Jonah's God, will come through. But as we see, the prayers are not working. So the next step is clearly, I mean, honestly, it's one of pagan superstition. It's the old belief that this, look, if something's bad happening, it's somebody's fault. Somebody's done something wrong, and a God is getting even with them. But what actually happens demonstrates how the true God will nevertheless, he'll use these false presumptions of the pagans actually to meet his purpose. That's what he's doing here. This case... Actually, yes, there is the Lord God who is getting after Jonah here. So verse 7, they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. This is the worst nightmare all of us have had at some point in our dreams perhaps or In reality, you know, you're trying to remain as inconspicuous as possible. Maybe you've done something wrong, and all eyes are turned on you. Now, in Jonah's case, not only are the mariners staring at him as they, you know, you might do that to someone who's different or just did something that was embarrassing. They're staring at the man who is the cause of their life-threatening storm. The gig is up. Jonah is now put on the spot, and the questions come at him quickly, beginning in verse 8. Then they said to him, Tell us on who account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. So Jonah identifies himself as a Hebrew in answer to the last question, which actually then leads to his next identification. Because a Hebrew is identified not only by where he lives, not only by his race, but most importantly, by his God. So he says, I fear the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, that's that name, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Now we noted last week that Jonah was ascribing to God sovereign power when he says the creator of the sea and the dry land. That creator is the ruler. So all of the earth, he is saying, is God's dominion. And unlike a human ruler, who may have a large domain but cannot control everything that takes place, this ruler does. Okay. And that is why Jonah cannot flee from his presence. He was trying to do that, but to no avail. Now, I want you to note this use of the term, fear the Lord. Now, if you've got the NIV, it translates the word as worship. The Hebrew term, which is pretty simple to pronounce, it's yerah. And it can be translated worship. There are parts in the Bible where it's obviously that's how to translate it. But even so, 
in that worship, in its very basic definition, is that aspect of fear. Fear is the basic meaning of the word yerun. Now, to fear God was the common understanding of ancient religions. They understood this. Gods needed to be pacified. They could be vengeful. They could be unpredictable. But that's not how the Hebrews viewed their God. Nor was it the, the tone of their fear. Let me just read, a, read just a handful of, of biblical references that will give us the kind of insight into it. In fact, we've already used it. We used it in our responsive reading, in which we read in, in Psalm 86:11, "Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name." Or in Psalm 96 form. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, he is to be feared above all gods. Or or another one, he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Or Psalm 118, 4, let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. So you can see here, just in these few verses, to fear the Lord does not mean to be in terror of the Lord unless unless one is under his judgment. But for those who belong to him, who are his people, to fear God is to acknowledge God's holiness. It is to acknowledge that God is, is sovereign. It is to acknowledge that God is that he's not like us, but indeed he really is the creator of the sea, the dry land of all that exists. It is to be in awe of God, not not in that modern sense that we now give to awe, you know, like being, wow, this is really cool, but being actually unsettled and thrilled at the same time. And so, yes, the Hebrew word, yera, it can be translated as worship. But here in this text, it kind of misses the contrast that's clearly being made here by Jonah, the writer. Because he's already noted that the, the mariners feared the storm. And it uses that term, yera. Jonah says that he fears yera, Jehovah. Now, when he says this, If the mariners were afraid before, they are all the more so now. Verse 10. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Don't you love the response of the mariners to Jonah? What have you done? Here we have the pagan sailors scolding the prophet of God. You're telling us that you fear the Lord of the sea and the earth? That's who you're trying to flee from? Of all the cargo boats in all the world, and you have to walk on two hours. Now that they know the cause of the storm, well, now they should truly be afraid. And again, it's that same term, um, actually, yare. I've been telling you it the wrong way, yare. So what is to be done? 
So, well, in verse 11, they say, well, then they said to him, what shall we do to you? That the sea may quiet down for us. The sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Now Jonah, to his credit, finally does something a bit honorable. He gives a brave solution, which he offers himself as a sacrifice. Really, is what he's doing for the lives of the men. But they're not so hasty. I mean, these men are thinking, you know, now... Maybe we can just get him to shore, and we could drop him off, then we'll be left alone. Now, Jonah's proposal, however noble it may be, I mean, they realize this. If they toss him over the ship, and that's not what they're supposed to do, they're going to offend his God further. Because, I mean, what, what we're talking about here is throwing a man to his death. Okay. So... They're going to do their best. Let's, let's see if we can just get him over to, to some land. But their efforts fail. And finally, they're going to have to resort to Jonah's proposal, beginning in verse 14. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood for you. O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So don't, don't take it out on us, what we're about to do. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the mariners, think about this, they had feared, first of all, the storm. Then they feared, what we're being told, the cause of the storm, once they had learned what it was. Namely, that Jonah had offended his God. They feared the desperate proposal of Jonah. And they prayed for pardon, even as they carried it out. But it's this last verse that depicts the right fear. What all has been leading up to. And I want you to notice is that when they witnessed the raging sea turned calm, that's when they knew that the Lord God, Yahweh, is the God that Jonah testified to, that he was indeed the creator of the sea and the dry land. And so it is then that they feared him, Yahweh, him exceedingly. And then what happened? As a result, their fear turned into right worship. They now offered a sacrifice, not each to their own God, but to the Lord God. And they made vows to him. And again, it's not the storm that led them to believe. It's the calming of the storm. That's when they recognized his true power. Isn't this a great story? So what are lessons for us to learn? Well, the first one is the same one from last week. That is, that no one can flee from the Lord because the Lord is sovereign. There's no place to run to or sail to that is outside his dominion. 
that stirring up of the storm and even more that calming of the storm demonstrates that he is sovereign in his power. God is not a mere onlooker over his domain. It's not like he he created it and now he, he watches from a distance. What is that song? God is watching us from a distance. No, he's not watching us from a distance. And everything is under his control. And he will use whatever he wills to correct our will. And so the first lesson is respect that sovereignty and that power. Because it will save a lot of fruitless effort on our part. So when you read a command in scripture, follow it. I mean, to go against it is only to invite trouble, at least what we view as trouble from the Lord. Well, I don't want to have to forgive so-and-so. I don't want to remain chaste. I don't, I don't want to... I mean, there are many things that we may not want to do. Living the Christian life is not easy. But there is no alternative if the Lord is your God. He will have his way, and as likely as not, you'll end up facing much more uncomfortable circumstances than if you just bucked up and followed his command. When he says do it, you may as well do it. Now, the second lesson can be easily overlooked. And it's simply this, that our sins do impact others. You know, Jonah's reckless behavior put the lives of innocent men in danger. And who knows, besides that one ship, what other ships were out there and under great peril? And if Jonah had just given the least thought to his foolishness, he would have understood the peril that he was placing others in. But no, he has only one thought in mind, himself, what he wanted to do, what he wanted to get away from. And so think about that. The next time you're tempted to some folly and you're saying, well, I'm only going to hurt myself, that's probably not true. It's probably going to impact someone else. Now, the mariners themselves... Uh, teach us uh, some critical lessons. For one thing, they're a good reminder that those whom we give no thought to or those whom we do not believe could ever be converted actually can be converted. Remember, what was Jonah rebelling against? He was rebelling against a a, a command to go to Nineveh. His sin puts him on board a ship And there are men on there whom he has given no thought to. These men mean nothing to him. And what happens? They are converted by his rebellion. Now, how's that for evangelism? Now, of course, the mariners, the whole point of this is that they never were an afterthought by the Lord. And he'll use whatever means. He'll use, he'll use the rebellion of his servants, evidently, to accomplish his will. And so, again, it's a good reminder for us, an encouragement to us, that those whom the Lord wills to convert, he will convert them. And he will use whatever means he desires to use to do that. And so it's a good thing for us to realize 
do not despair. Don't despair for your loved ones and others for whom you have been praying for years. Do not despair over the circumstances that they have placed themselves under. You know, you're thinking, oh, now that they've gone there, they never will come to know the Lord. There's no good church there. Don't despair. God will save those whom he determines to save. And do not furthermore dismiss the salvation of anyone. You think, well, they're, they're Muslim. They're never going to come to know the Lord. Or they're atheists. Or, goodness, they're so terrible, they never will. God will save. God will save whomever he will save. Now, speaking of all these different religions, the mariners do teach us that being religious is not enough when it comes to to worship and following God. They believed in their gods. They cried out to their gods. The problem was that they did not know the true God. And being religious, being spiritual, it may feel good. And we're hearing all the time of people talking about, oh yes, I, I feel close to God. I'm, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm spiritual and I do my little thing. And and they just feel so close to God. What the scripture tells us is that God doesn't share the same feelings. We can feel close to God and God be as ever distant if we are not worshiping the true God. And this next lesson, I know I have lots of lessons. I'm not a good Presbyterian preacher. I'm supposed to have three points, but I do my best. The next lesson is the clear message of this text. This is the main lesson. Do we fear God? Do we grasp the concept of a holy God? Now, for those of you who were last week, you might remember that I, I read the passage in Isaiah where the prophet comes before the presence of God and he cries out in fear that he's an unclean man and he's standing for the king, the Lord of hosts. Well, what was it that Isaiah actually saw? Well, let me read it to you. It's in Isaiah 6, 1 through 4. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robes filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And you and I are not likely to be granted that same kind of vision as Isaiah. But it is this vision that we need to be meditating upon. You know, the Lord is merciful to us. And from the very teaching of Christ himself, we have come to know this great God as our Father. And that's good. But understand that his character has not changed. He remains the holy God from whom all the world is to tremble. You know, as I'd already noted, that the Hebrew word yare, it can be translated to worship. 
Even so, that basic meaning in there is of fear. And so it teaches us that worship, as, you know, as much as celebrating and joyful as it is, there is to be that element of fear. It's difficult for us Americans to, to grasp this because the only thing we know is democracy, which, which is good. I'm glad that's all we know. But it's hard to kind of conceptualize this. The people of, of Isaiah's and many lands grasped this immediately. Those who have lived under kings would understand this, that we worship a God who is not like us. He is not a tame God. You don't know exactly what he's going to do, not because he's just kind of an unpredictable God, but because he is a holy God and we are not. Our Father in heaven is the almighty king of heaven and earth. He gives life and he takes it away as he pleases. And all that live are to live for the purpose of serving him alone. And as a holy God, he will not abide sin. He will bring justice. And therefore, as we're told in Hebrews 12, 28, we are to offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. So meditate upon that concept. Think about that. Pray about that throughout the week and see how it affects the way that you worship. Because the more you understand it, the more thrilling worship does become the richer the celebration becomes. It's kind of like the, the difference between, I don't know, you're, you're being about four or five floors up in a building and you're looking out over the site and you're enclosed in a, a building and, and, and it might be a pretty scene that you see and, and you like that. It's the difference between that and then being on top of a mountain peak a high, maybe a little bit scary mountain peak, and you're looking out over the grandeur of creation. And you sense there that, that great sense of the majesty of God who has created you and redeemed you. So yes, fear God. And, and again, if you truly fear him, here's a bonus that will come through all of this. You will not fear the storms of life that much. You will not fear man. In Psalm 34, 7 through 9, it says, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. And it goes on to say, Oh, taste and, and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. So if you fear the Lord, you have no need to fear anyone or anything else. Now, in closing, there's another story of a boat that was in peril. And the main character was asleep during the storm. It was smaller water. It was the Sea of Galilee. It was in a smaller boat. The mariners were Jesus' disciples. And they were rather experienced sailors in their own right. And of course, as we know, it was Jesus who was sleeping. Let me just read you that brief story from Luke 8, 23 to 25. As they sailed, he fell asleep. 
And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid. And they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? See how much the disciples were like the mariners? First they feared the storm because of its raging. Then they feared Jesus because of his power to actually calm the storm. The first fear was for their safety. That second fear was reverential awe for their master, whom they learned was the master of creation itself. Now at that time Jesus calmed the, the storm by his command. Jonah made it possible for the storm to be calmed by the sacrifice of himself. Well, as we know, the day would come when Jesus would offer up himself as a much greater sacrifice to save us from a greater storm. Our Savior was not fleeing from God. He was traveling without hesitation to the destination that God the Father was sending him to to die upon that cross for us. He traveled straight to that destination because our Savior was the true servant of whom it was said in Isaiah in chapter 11, verse 2. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Our Savior was able to travel through many dangers toils and fears because he knew the fear of the Lord. And so we, by his amazing grace, may travel through the same, knowing that our Lord's grace will lead us home. We give you thanks, our God, for this amazing grace that you have given to us, the grace of Jesus Christ himself, who went through the great storm so that we may not need to go pass through it, that we may be able to pass through these lesser storms and to come to you. Thank you, our God. Thank you, our Lord Jesus, for your amazing grace.